WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Nigger is nigger a swear? First line. Uh, yeah. Okay, so did I give You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. It's 5 o'clock on the nose, WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm so glad to be sitting here today. Phoebe Gleckner is in the studio. You've just run through the snow, Phoebe, to get here a little bit, Yeah, I have. It was pretty exciting. (laughs) Hi, T. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for being here. This is, we were talking uh, just a moment ago about how um, this week you've got a a pop, a pop-up installation um, at the Osterman Room at the Humanities Institute, and that's, people can pop in to see the pop-up. The (laughs) pop-up exhibition. That's right. And there'll be a 
I guess, a, um, an artist talk and a reception on Tuesday afternoon, like at 2 or something like that. Oh, Tuesday next week? I mean, no, no, no. Or Friday. Friday at 2? I was thinking 2. Is it's this... Friday at 2, uh, not okay. Tuesday. Yeah, right. Yeah. 2, so, 2. Right. Friday so the 21st. at 2. first. Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, and so you'll be there also. Yeah, I'll be talking, there. Talking, answering questions, and maybe there'll even be some... Who knows? Crackers and cheese or so, right? That would be excellent. Isn't that how those things go? I hope so. Go? I'll bring some myself if there isn't any. <laughs> no, no. Okay. <laughs> Before we go any further, I'll just, uh, I'll read uh, Phoebe Gleckner's biography from, from your website, actually, from Art and Design. Okay. So hopefully that's okay. You don't mind me uh, doing that. And we've got on the table um, Phoebe Gleckner's books, A Child's Life and Other Stories, and also The Diary of a Teenage girl an account in words and pictures um and a quick shout out to say thank you to julia kent at north atlantic books for sending the books she's she's kind of amazing here okay phoebe gleckner is a graphic novelist her book the diary of a teenage girl 2002 was praised as one of the most brutally honest shocking tender beautiful portrayals of growing up female in america cartoonist r crumb called her story minnie's third love published in A Child's Life and Other Stories, one of the comic book masterpieces of all time. Her books have been published in multiple languages, and her artwork has been exhibited in galleries and museums across the U.S. and Europe. Gleckner has long experimented with the form of the novel. Diary is a hybrid of prose and graphic novel, and her current projects will incorporate various media, audio, motion, and static, with text. In 2008, Gleckner was awarded the Guggenheim Fellowship to continue work on an ongoing project centering on the life of the family of a murdered teenager living in Ciudad Juarez, several hundred feet from the U.S.-Mexico border. Okay, so we've got a lot to talk about, Phoebe. <laughs> um, and and your, well, maybe briefly, your talk on Friday at 2, that will be more more rooted in the diary of a teenage girl, an account in words and pictures. Is that right? Right, because um, that show actually, um, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm excited to see it. Um, It's about the process of making this book. So what they're displaying is original diary pages, and which are sort of incorporated into this. They're, you know, I sucked them into this book to write this book. (laughs) The book is basically has a narrative structure that's like fiction. It's not a document like a diary, but I did use the actual diaries I wrote when I was a teenager. So so and, they'll be there. And there's also the framework <laughs> in the in the book. You do have the sort of um don't, you know, warning, you know, do not read further or so and this is dear diary like uh let's find it here. A note of caution to the reader. <laughs> and and it's funny because right from the get-go, there's like this, there's just like such a smartness and a wit that's all throughout this novel. Um, dear, dear. <laughs> and then, of course, sort of the, the note follows and then um, signed by Minnie uh, Getzi in San Francisco, California. Um, oh, Getz. Getz. Mm-hmm. And it's even gets you a handy little candy there to say how to pronounce it so yeah this is it's i actually got a chance to visit the the gallery this afternoon oh, did you? and it's great to see because it actually made some because there's a hello kitty sort of on a part of the diary and then there you see the hello kitty diary right. and then you you know you read about um the character Minnie typing out in a notebook you know, on notebook pages, lying notebook pages, and then you get to see these typed pages, um, photos of Bob's Grill um, in frames, um, the floor plan of the apartment in San Francisco. So all these pieces are there. Um, and plus there's one of a, a picture, a frame with a, a little a jug, a ceramic jug. And yeah, was that was Wait, like, a picture of a ceramic jug? Yeah, it was a framed. It was in a frame, and I was like, I wonder what. You know, was. I don't know what that what is. is. Okay, okay. <laughs> and well, and then there were photos of it of you on a, a cemetery on Benson's, like a gravestone. Oh, that's right. Yeah, 
And so, and, and which which the character Minnie also hangs out in cemeteries sometimes when she decides not to go to school. So there's all the, it's kind of this amazing experience to see these artifacts. Yeah, <laughs> well, good. <laughs> I'm really curious about that jug, though. I'm gonna, uh, right. I'll have to I see have it. Taken a picture. You should have. Yeah. There, there was um a, there was actually a humanities fellows were meeting at the time when I was looking at the space. Oh. <laughs> so I had I didn't I couldn't stay long. Right. Um. But well. Okay, well, great. Well, stay tuned, everyone, to hear more about the jug. I suppose I can fill everyone in at a later date about <laughs> okay. about that. Um, so, so Phoebe, what um, you you started drawing from um, a very very young age and telling stories um, that way. Um, yeah, were you compelled to draw? Like, I, I guess all kids draw, but then you just stayed drawing. Right. It's like all kids write and some stay writing um, because I think we learn to draw and write at about the same time. Maybe drawing comes a little bit earlier. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was always drawing. I was very hyper when I was a kid. So, I, you know, I couldn't sit still and listen to anyone like at school without doing something else. So if I wasn't jumping up and down, I'd have to be drawing. Um and by the way, your tablecloth reminds me of that. It's a do piece you, of canvas covered with graffiti and little drawings. It's, do you want a pen? Because I could <laughs> rifle around and find Actually, one. Actually, that might calm me down. Okay. Yeah. Let me, well, so, so you, but what were some of the things you started drawing when you were little? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I mean, I would draw anything. I'd draw, you know, I'd draw girls in beautiful long dresses. Princesses. You know, princesses. <laughs> I didn't draw horses, but I'd draw princesses. And I could tell you, I, it just, I remember... The first time I had this revelation, um, you know, if you look at an eye straight on, it's shaped like an almond, right? Um, and for a while, when I was, you know, eight or nine, I was drawing these princesses in profile view, and then their eyes in the shape of an almond, as if it was being seen with, from the front. And then I remember one day I was staring at someone. Like Picasso. I, I guess so. But, I mean, suddenly I had this Prodigy. revelation. <laughs> Prodigy, right, exactly. Um no, but it, it, I had this sudden revelation when I was staring at a friend of mine. Oh, that's not the way the eye is on the side of the head. No, you've got to draw it like this. And I can actually see like how the eye, the iris is behind this clear thing that's bulging. You know, and I suddenly, it was fascinating. And, and, and I felt like I had this incredible freedom, like I could draw this properly. Um, so it was an epiphany, really. Yeah, and I don't know why I'm describing that. Because, but anyway, it was. And it, well, it happened. It sounds like at a really young age. I guess I don't know. Yeah. When when I was probably still drawing stick figures and like maybe a maybe giant <laughs> a giant tree the size of the house or well, right, maybe or, right. I, I don't know. Yeah, maybe yeah. And well, and so you had an eye for well. Now it's on an eye. <laughs> yeah, an eye for these things. Like you could like you could understand it. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I mean, I. I wouldn't say that I'm any was any better or worse. I mean, you know, well, there's lots of kids who, yeah. right? Because what happens is that um, people who go on to do comics or something similar, um, they generally are people who not only want to tell stories but are very attracted to words, and so like the interplay then of the the words of the word and the, the image the pictures, yeah. right? So it'll be someone who who likes words and pictures, and then. When you bring them together in a comic, it's something totally different. Because, you you know, if you look at an illustrated book, like a kid's book, you'll see on one page is the text, the other page is the, the illustration. And typically, almost always, the illustration is redundant of the information on the opposite page. It's describing, again, what was already described. But in a comic, the images function differently. They are part of the narrative and they serve to advance it somewhat. So both the words and the pictures have this same role of, you know, creating the narrative together. And it is a different language. It's not like images alone or words alone. It it's really different at least to me. Yeah. No, completely. And uh -huh. you and how you're describing it is as as perfect of of course that um cuz I mean you probably talk about this quite a bit with 
If someone yeah. asks me, I'll talk. About well, not yeah, not on like <laughs> you're riding the bus, you start <laughs> telling to, people, mumbling about it on the bus, <laughs> text right. an image, yeah, interplay, right, advancing the story. <laughs> no, but yeah. it's and it's powerful. But also, I think it's interesting to think like what, when did you decide? Did you always have the words working with your pictures then? Your drawings? Yeah, somewhat. I remember I would write little limericks and then draw pictures to go with them. Um, So I think pretty much so, yeah. But I didn't really start doing full stories until I was like 14 or 15. So, and... um, Was that Mary the Minor? Yeah. Yeah, those things are... I think there's another one in the book. I don't know. Um, But the thing is, I didn't read comics when I was a kid. I was not like a, you know... A lot of kids who read comics are, like, obsessed. You know, they have to have every Pokemon, every Batman, every whatever. Um, but I wasn't like that at all. I like, you know, I liked Little Lada. You know, a couple, you know, some of the... Richie Rich, I like those things. But I wasn't obsessed. And it wasn't until I was about 12, maybe 13. <clears throat> no, a little younger, actually. I guess 1970 or so. Um my mom had copies of underground comics. And if you don't know what those are, those are the comics that came out in the 60s and um, in the hippie era. But they weren't necessarily made by hippies. Um, Robert Crumb was one of the most famous cartoonists of that time, but there are many others. And um, you would never call him a hippie. Um, but anyway, I, I got my hands on some, a comic book called Zap. And um, that was a series of these underground comic books. And unlike regular comic books that are, like, penciled by one person, inked by one person, the lettering is done by one person, the script is made by two people, and then someone else has the, the main idea and oversees Right. But <clears throat> underground comics, the stories were written and drawn by the same person. And so in that sense, to me, they're a little... They're, more purely what I'm talking about before, about this language, because it's this one person synthesizing these two things and telling a story. So anyway... It's the experience then. Yeah. I guess. I mean, it's like an auteur film, right? It's like, you know, it's not a big production. Um, But anyway, so in these comic books, I mean, there were stories about everything. There was the stories about violence, about politics, about relationships, about sex, about just anything. And I suddenly realized, wow, you could tell a story about anything, anything in a comic, not just, you know, funny kid stuff. And it, it I was just almost paralyzed by the inspiration I suddenly felt. And um, so, you know, and then I just started looking for more comics. And, you know, I was like 13 years old, wandering up and down Market Street in San Francisco in the early 70s. And, um, looking for head shops because that's where you had to buy them. And, of course, you know what a head shop is, don't you, kids? It's like bongs and thongs, <laughs> right? Same thing, but they had comics. Um, so, um, Wait, on that note, yeah. let's take a short break, and then we'll come back and okay, we'll very hear good. more about the bongs, thongs, and comics. Okay. Today, Phoebe Gleckner is here. We've got Phoebe's books on the table, The Diary of a Teenage Girl, An Account in Words and Pictures, Film to Come in 2015, and A Child's Life and Other Stories. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be right back. I've never seen the inside of a bar room Or listen to a jukebox all night long But I see these are the things that bring you pleasure So I'm gonna make some changes in our home I've heard it said if you can't beat them, join them So if that's the way you've wanted me to be I'll change if it takes that to make you happy From now on we're gonna see a different me Because you're good girls are gonna go bad I'm gonna be the swingin'est swinger you've ever had If you like them, paint it up, powder up Then you ought to be glad Cause you're good girls are gonna go bad I'll even learn to like 
In fact, you'll hardly recognize your wife I'll buy some brand new clothes and dress up fancy For my journey to the wilder side of life Because you're good girl Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Phoebe Gleckner is here. We've got the Liz behind the glass spinning the tunes that Phoebe picked. (laughs) So that Tammy Wynette song. Um, Why is that one that you picked, Phoebe? Why is that in the lineup of the five? Well, I love that song. I love Tammy Wynette. And um, I guess it reminded me of The Diary of a Teenage Girl because when I was a teenager, oh, this is more like, okay, so... We used to have record stores. We don't have record stores anymore, do we? We still have one on Liberty. Oh, yeah, that one. Thank okay. goodness. Yeah. Okay, so at any rate... Um, Encore, Encore Records. Encore Records, right. Um, but I didn't have very much money. And if they had records that weren't very popular, they would punch holes in the corners, like with a hole puncher. And they would through be called... The album. They would be called cutouts or something. Yeah, through the, uh, the cardboard. And I would always go into the Banana Records... Was Banana Records. I would always go in there and look through the cutouts, and um, I saw this record, Tammy Wynette. It was red, with her on the cover, looking really like a little waif. You know, it was her early years, and she was playing guitar, um, an acoustic guitar. And I looked at that face, and I was just transfixed by it. I don't know if you know what she looks like. I mean, she's beautiful but she looks neither male nor female she has a very kind of almost a stern look this kind of placidly very unexpressive face it's a long face uh, anyway you'd have to see it it's hard to describe someone's face on the radio but <laughs> but, but thanks for trying yeah and i was just like i i i got the record right because it was really cheap and then i listened to it and i just i love that album but i had no idea i would like it i i bought it for the face yeah, And then it actually makes a cameo in the diary of a teenage girl because it's on the jukebox. It's on the jukebox. And so Minnie actually writes about it, transcribes some of the lyrics. Right. And, yeah. and it seems like a song that she um, can identify with as well. Yeah. <laughs> or take to heart. Kind of, yeah. A little bit. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. As we, as we all, at least I think I, I can. I don't know. Yeah, well, I think that song is about a woman trying to be something she's not because she's angry and feels pressured yeah something like that but i don't know if that applies but anyway well, that's oh i see what you mean maybe driven to experience and have experience right driven to it but like, kind of out of being pissed off right yeah well yeah. there's anger yeah there you go <laughs> um but yeah. well phoebe will you read um some something for us from <clears throat> um the diary of a teenager? okay i'll preface this preface this by saying that during this hour there can be no profanity on the radio. So there is profanity in this book, and I had a hard time finding a page that didn't have any. Um, so I'll read Friday, September 17th. Do we, do, we even have, do we have to say what the book is about, or I just start reading? I think if you want to set it up a little bit, you could. Okay. Well, Because you're in the... Yeah, like the, the book is kind of a sad book. Maybe... I think. I don't know. But it's about a girl who, whose first love experience, love relationship, sexual relationship, is with her mother's boyfriend. Um, so in that sense, it's kind of a tragedy. But she's got a lot of gumption. And so hopefully you have the feeling that she's going to get over this. Anyway, um, last night I asked Monroe if he was busy all weekend. I wanted to know if he wanted to make love. He replied that he was not only busy, but also sick, and couldn't find enough time to do everything he had to do as it was. I got so mad and full of hate and bitterness that I threw my typewriter across the room. I just didn't know what else to do. I cried, but there just wasn't any way, it seemed, to appease my anguish. So I went to bed with the intent of visiting him the next morning before school. I wanted to yell at him and hit him and tell everybody what he'd done. But I didn't feel like it in the morning, and I went through the day with hate pouring out of me, even into my work. I couldn't even draw. I couldn't control the lines. They sprawled wildly all over the page. I sat in the library and wrote a letter expressing my feelings. I cut math 
and I took the cable car to his house. I rang the buzzer and left the note in his box, thinking he wouldn't be home. But he opened the door with a mechanical button from his apartment, so I held my breath and went in. My heart was beating so fast. He'd been taking a nap. I told him how miserable I was, but I tried not to appear too miserable. Yes, yes, he said. I understand. It makes me feel so shitty to see you so miserable. He was kind of being funny. He told me that I looked like a ragamuffin, but I didn't care because I knew I did, and I wouldn't care anyway. After a while, he said that he guessed it would be a big mistake for us to make love because it always affected me so much. I either have to love you or hate you, I said. I can't just be casually in between like you seem to be with your relationships. We walked, we talked, and he kept pulling my hair and tugging my arm, and then he put his arm around me. I protested a little, but then I let him. I don't know why. Then we took a nap. I got up after a while because I hate sleeping in the afternoon. I walked behind the bed over near the table, and he suddenly sprang up and grabbed me. I simply can't have you searching through my things, he said. I know, I cried. I wasn't searching. I was just getting some fresh air. I can't sleep during the day. Come take a nap, he said. And I think I can't read anymore because... <laughs> anyway. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. So in that, we, we get to hear Minnie's voice really clearly. And Monroe, right. the, the mother's boyfriend also, too. But Minnie's definitely her interior. Yeah, I guess so. Right. And she's angry. She doesn't know how to express it. She writes mean and nasty letters, but then is kind of afraid to give it to him. And I, Right. Well, it's that. It's I mean, the age that Minnie is in the book is it's so tough. It's such a confusing age. Even in the most, like, if you're in a situation where there's lots of clear boundaries, and it seems like uh, Minnie really has been thrown into an exciting point in the history of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And, sort of, and like you said, like, she's walking around on the on the, the streets of San Francisco and cutting school, cutting math, at least. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it was an interesting point in San Francisco because um, it was kind of in between everything. It wasn't the hippie era that, you know, hippies went, this was like in the mid seventies. I mean, hippies still exist. Sure. But, um, the summer of love was in 1969. So that was over. So there was all these wannabe hippies wandering around. Um, and then the disco era had kind of begun, but, (laughs) but punk rock was also just beginning. So it was kind of in between all of these things. And, um, it was exciting for that reason, but it was also a period where nothing really prevailed, except maybe disco. Disco got really big. It was the pre-AIDS era in San Francisco, and you know, there it was exciting to be in, on the big gay streets, which is where I used to run away to all the time. But um, you know, there were, until the wee hours of night, there were disco balls and open doors and the disco balls were putting their lights out into the street all night you know it was beautiful and music yeah and and so and with this so talking about this the story here with Minnie mm-hmm. um the main our protagonist here um and then thinking also about the the um the work in the process um your piece that's up at the Osterman Rune and the Humanities Institute it feels like there's these there's these blurring parts uh between um cuz of all your absorbed life experience mm-hmm. and then Minnie's story um was it was it good like was it a kind of a good distancing thing to create this character Minnie no i well or you know people often often ask me is is your work therapeutic and i would say no absolutely not um, and <laughs> I don't know if, if you were getting going in that direction. No, but, um, I absolutely was not. Mm-hmm. But um, it was really hard for me to write this because when I was a teenager, I despised myself. I mean, I I guess I I knew there were some things that were okay about myself, but certainly I didn't know what use I would ever make of them. I despised myself. So, um, I mean, I think, unfortunately, a lot of teenagers do. I mean, teenage girls I know for sure do. But um, So anyway, I had to write this book, even with all the stuff I had, the diaries and stuff. I had to kind of... It took a long time for me to realize what I had to do to make this book. 
And that was to realize that if any girl who was in the same situation came up to me and talked to me, I would love her. I would embrace her. I would comfort her. I would talk to her, you know. And I had to do that in a sense for myself. But the only way I could do that was thinking of her as any girl. So it was getting this distance from this character being me. I had to, I had to love her in order to write about her or else this book was going to be shit. Because, um, so it's kind of the schizophrenic thing where you separate from yourself to tell a story. Um, is that clear? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And to try to understand the story in some way. Yeah. And and you have to have compassion for the main character. You have to. Any writer does, I think. Understanding and compassion, if you hate the main character. <laughs> I mean, well, there's a lot of characters you might hate. But I, I mean, right now I'm working on the story in about Juarez, right? And um, there are a lot of people in the story that are somewhat reprehensible. There are murderers. But the thing is, you have to try to understand them mm-hmm. as much as, as well as you understand the victims. It, otherwise, you get this black and white victim perpetrator thing, and that's not what life really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to take a short break and then we'll come back. Today on the program, Phoebe Gleckner is here. We've got the diary of a teenage girl, an account in words and pictures, and a child's life and other stories. You've got living writers. We'll be right back. I'm sure glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers. Phoebe, Phoebe Gleckner is here um, today in the studio. Um, we just in the last quarter got to hear from uh, a piece from the diary of a teenage girl. Um, and I love the line that you have in the, in this book, Phoebe. I don't remember being born. <laughs> it seems like a touchstone line in some ways. What does that mean? Like something like it's like if if the book had because it does have an epigraph, but if it had like another sort of this like a mantra or so, maybe it would be that I don't. Yeah. And I don't know exactly what it means, except that I was always thinking about, you know, birth and death and why be afraid of death? Because we don't remember being born. And I don't know. So, so we won't remember dying either then? I suppose so, yeah. This makes me think of, um, I read um, an earlier interview that you had done with someone for the Comics Journal um, a, a while ago, and then I guess he reissued it. And there was a time where you guys were talking about Edgar Allan Poe, and it seemed like you, you just off the cuff started quoting um, one of his poems, and the, the fever called living is conquered at last, like was one of the lines. Oh, yeah. Right. And I just, and so was Poe 
because it seems like i mean you what it, you're you're super obviously super interesting now you must have been such an interesting kid too like oh, with these like it feels like you might have had epiphanies kind of earlier than other kids did and you stayed connected to them like you didn't get derailed from i don't know making your art or, or figuring out i think in a sense i really um I, I think a lot of artists feel this way. It's like they really have no choice but to write or but to paint whatever they're doing. Because, you know, you, you go into that, you know you're not going to make any money. I mean, you can't expect that. You know that people will probably not like your work or be pissed off by it. So the only reason to do it is because you have to. Um, unless you're approaching it from a purely commercial you know, but then it would be a different thing. It'd be a different thing, it. and so I think I've always been like that. It's like that's what I've always had. It, it's it's the only consistent thing I think that I've had through my life. I guess, yeah, just it's, a drive to do the work. And if I'm if I'm not completing something, I have to be thinking about it. Um, it does consume me when I'm working. Um, I mean the the book I've been working on now I've been working on for it's I think it's 10 years I've been working the Juarez book Yeah but it's it's strange to say it's, I've been working on it 10 years cuz you'd think I would have been done by now but um I started going to Juarez about 10 years ago and um I mean someone from Amnesty International asked me to go to do some piece and I'd never been to Mexico and um I was taken around and introduced to all these parents of dead girls. And um, it was, it, first of all, I didn't want to go in the first place because I had two little kids, girls. And um, I've always been afraid of murder. Who isn't? So I just, I was, it was kind of freaking me out to even go, but I was kind of like, you know, they asked me again. So finally I said, okay. And, um, it was so shocking to me. I mean, as it would be to anyone, it 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 was the pain I was seeing that was shocking and fearsome and but it was the absolute poverty and the lack of resources that these parents had to 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 find out what happened to their daughters. And so I um after I did the thing for Amnesty, I I I couldn't let it go because I kind of felt like this Johnny hit and run Pauline. Like I was in Juarez doing this story, taking people's stories basically, turning them into something else. And it would be a book printed, it would benefit Amnesty International, but the people that it was about would never see it. Some of them didn't even read. And that just made me feel really weird. And there were also films that was that were about this area at that time. And the people I met, some of them had been interviewed for these films and featured prominently in these films. And they never saw the films. It could have been three or four years after it was released, these documentaries and things, and it there, never got back to the people. It seems like their stories were taken from them. It, it feels like that, but, you know, what is the value of a story? I don't know, but it's that... Hugely. You know, if you do something like that, there's some satisfaction or gratification in knowing that someone is talking about your daughter on a DVD or whatever. And if it never gets back to them, they just have no idea. And it's just like a lot of people don't even know what happened to their kids. So there's all these like loose ends and these like what ifs and where it's, you know, to go down there, it's like, in a sense, it's being lost in like pain and excitement and fear. <clears throat> And love of family. I mean, it's just... Anyway, I, I decided to, to continue and to write a novel. and um, But it was very difficult to, to write it from the point I was at that time, which was basically shocked and horrified and feeling like a privileged white woman at a university and meeting poor people. What does that mean? I almost said a swear word. Um, and... Um, so 
I had I knew that I had to go down there again and again. I had to get to know the people I was writing about, and I had to know their life. You know, visit them, stay at their house, all this crap. I had to do that so that their lives were more or less normalized to me instead of being shocked. But or well, romanticized. I, or romanticized, right. You know, because otherwise you're writing as people about people as victims and you feel kind of guilty and it, it's not that. And I just I wanted to get down there more and um the only way I could do that was by going back repeatedly a few times a year over 10 years over a course of time. Yeah. And what I saw was this huge, I mean, I started before this huge upsurge in violence that happened, you know, 2009, 2010, 2011, and and now it's died down a bit, but it's still there. I mean, so much has happened in that city. Um, so much has been lost. Things are being rebuilt now, but oh. there's something like 9,000 people dead in just three years in one city. So uh, when people, if people were to go to your website, Phoebe, um, ravenblonde.com, some of the, when you land on the homepage, is like, or is that image work that's connected also to this project and maybe also the one that looks apocalyptic where it almost looks like an x-ray shot of the streets, like a, yeah. the buildings, the power lines. Right. Yeah, that okay. is. Um, should I talk more or is it a break or... Oh, no. Go okay, ahead, good, go good, ahead. good. This will give us the sign. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> Magic of radio. <laughs> right. No, this, as opposed to my earlier books that the images were drawn with pen and ink, um, this book will have images. I actually, I built replicas of the people's houses inside and out. and So dioramas. Yeah, they're dioramas, but I also built, like, my whole studio is covered with sand um so i build streets i built you know i've got things all over the place and i i take photographs of these and um then i manipulate the photographs a little bit and the point is well it looks infused with different color like a different sense of the color like it feels rounder or something rounder <laughs> color <laughs> uh, that's a nice thought um yeah i don't know but, but i'm sorry you were saying the point is so i didn't mean but to the point is um <laughs> I I was trying to draw it before, oh, okay. and it was very upsetting to me. It was it's kind of like what we were talking about before, or I mentioned that if you're writing about violence, for example, you really have to find some level where you can empathize with the murderer as well as the victim. It's not a pleasant thing. You have to be in that moment when someone's being murdered, or you know, you have to. And it's hard, and it hurts. And um, when I was trying to draw these things, I just felt like it was taking so long. You know, your brain is working to imagine these things in three dimension, three dimensions. So it's in your head, and you're living with it. And drawing it was making it in my head too much. So um, I built these things, thinking, okay, I can make these dolls. They all distancing. It's maybe, well. It's not that. It's or, like it's almost like this magical thinking. I have these dolls. I've built them from the skeleton up, and um, I can kill them. I can rape them. I can strangle them. I can pull their hair out. But next day, you just clean them up, and they're alive again. You know. So it's just this feeling like, yeah, I might be the perpetrator, and I have to be at this moment. But I'm going to give them life. But that's kind of what art is anyway. So it's kind of like fooling, tricking yourself and, or reminding yourself that there is some transcendence in art, at least one hopes. So anyway, that's why I do the dolls. Let's, let's take a short break and then we'll, we'll be right back. Today, Phoebe Gleckner is here in the studio. You can go and hear Phoebe speak at the Humanities Institute this Friday at 2 o'clock. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers, and we'll be right back. For the man, too much for the man. 
We're going to be leaving in about 15 minutes and then everyone has sports. But Phoebe Gleckner is here in the studio. We've got the diary of a teenage girl and a child's life and other stories. You, you know what? Actually, you were earlier this this term. You have been really busy. All this, the work that we've just been talking about that you're making and, and li- living in now. And um, also with Jim Ottaviani, you were did a banned books, oh, I yeah. think, panel, right? Yeah, yeah. Because your two books, actually, these books that we've been talking about, we're also part of that. Well, actually, uh, or was this, it just a child? No, it, not this one, but a well, child's life. Actually, this one, the diary of a teenage girl. Um, you know, even though I lived in San Francisco, my publisher used a Michigan printer, and um, this book they received it to print. I think it was this one. Maybe no, it's all this other one. It's all it's this other life. one. A child's life always gets is bad news. I'm telling you, but. Um, <laughs> No, so the publish. I don't know if I should mention the name of the printer, but uh, we'll just say, well, some Michigan printer, some Ann Arbor printer. Oh, um, anyway, they got the book and they printed all this publisher's other books, lots of books, and they refused to print it. They said they could not because someone had complained on the printing team. But then finally, they they my publisher, I guess, said, well, why are we publishing? Why are we printing anything with you? And right. so they somehow negotiated it. What happened is that the publisher arranged for certain pr- people who weren't offended by the book to work at night to print it so other people didn't have to see it. <laughs> this is a powerful text, Steve, and uh, this is a <laughs> powerful book you made. Yeah, well, I mean... I mean, that's absurd that that's absurd. What, what happened. Yeah. But how incredible. So to think about what our... Like when you're talking about what it takes to make something mm-hmm. and when you're you're being in it and you're like for this, like, for example, the last 10 years, you've been not only traveling to Juarez, but living in like creating these uh, like installations in your office, you know, um, this world. It's like where you're experiencing it. It's it's you can feel like all of that is actually the intensity then that gives these life then. I guess that's what art is. I guess that's what art does, right? I mean, you know, I was thinking about that. I mean, you know, if you read a book, like like I love, you know, Emil Zola. I love Thomas Hardy. Anyway, if, if you read some Emil Zola book, um, it's like so well written and the voice is so real that you feel like either you know him or you know this time and you're just certain of it, that it's almost right there next to you alive. And in that sense... He's immortalized all the people he wrote about, whether they're real or made up from other people he had was impressed by in some way. Or maybe you know Zola, I don't know, but so it's like it's like a time capsule because we can travel, we can read Beowulf and and hear the voice of the people or person who wrote it, you know. So I guess that's what it is. It's like freeze-dried life or something. And being connected. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and being connected to, to freeze-dried life. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Which doesn't sound unsettling at all. No. <laughs> right. Totally the norm. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Well, well, let's talk about what is this film going like oh, going okay. to be like? The Diary of a Teenage Girl. Were you... Because I looked up on IMDb, I guess. Right. And so, so you, you, obviously, yours is the, the novel. This is the, the, the work. And then it looks like the director was maybe... Did you work with her writing the screenplay? Well, or what? I've known her for a long time now. She actually made a play of the film, like, years ago. Um, and... I, and staged it maybe in San Francisco. Or no, or it, she did it, it. It was in New York for like okay. three months, and you know several people had wanted to make a film, and I always said no. Then she comes and says, "I want to make a play." And I said, "Are you crazy? This book, what? what? 
what would you do with this book to make a play out of it? And it was just like, I could not imagine. So um, I said, sure, knock yourself out. And, um, and she did. She did. <laughs> and now, you know, she got all this backing. She's supported by the Sundance Institute. She got raised money for the film. And she has made a film. And And I was on the set three or four times I spent a lot of time on the set as much as I could I was teaching but I was like going every other weekend or for four days or you know whenever I didn't teach and it was such a great experience it was a strange experience because well as we've said I mean this book is sort of based in life and my experiences just like any artist is but uh, any writer writes about themselves to a certain amount I can't speak anymore I'm sorry Um, but so to see people acting as these people that I actually experienced in my own life or or as myself, you know, it's it was a book. It was a diary. Then it was a book. Then it was a play. And then it was a film. And um, I mean, it's just like it's telescoping every way. And it just like makes you dizzy. And it's just such a weird experience. And I'm so grateful to have had that. Because it was so, it was powerful. Did it feel authentic to the story, like the same intentions that you felt that were central to the the book, or did it feel like what what she had done? Um, what's her name? Marielle Heller. Mary Heller. Uh-huh. How she had she created a new artifact, like a new experience? Well, I think she has to create a new experience, but it also has to be have the same spirit. So there's that balance that just has to be, I think. Um, I have not seen the whole film. So I can't tell you. I, well, when is the Ann Arbor release and should we invite the printing press? Well, <laughs> no, it's go. It's, it's, they just wrapped up the sound. They just finished it like a, a matter of a week ago or something, a week cool. or two ago. And so it's been sent out to film festivals and then it'll be picked up for distribution. Um, it seems to be a great film. It's got some stars in it. And I'll tell you right now, I love Alexander Skarsgård. He plays Monroe. He, do you know who he is? Yes. Yeah, he plays Eric, the the handsome vampire on True Blood. I'm sure he does other things, but no, but he's incredible. I mean, he, you would never have thought that he could play this role, but he's incredible in it. Yeah. So, oh, cut. Did you? Oh, oh, no, oh, no, no. Okay. I was just, I was just, oh. if it itches, scratch it. No. Okay, good. <laughs> Right, that makes sense. But anyway, so, um, no, and Marielle Heller is a great director. This is her first feature film, and I'm so excited for her, um, and I'm excited to see the end. You know, I had the opportunity to see the whole film. I was there about three weeks ago. They were doing the sound at um, George Lucas's Skywalker Ranch. They were doing the sound there, and um, so I sat through that and saw all, all these scenes, and... I was asked if I wanted to see the whole film. And the sound guy turned around and said, you shouldn't see it. And I said, yeah? And he said, no, you have to wait till the premiere Uh because then it's gonna have the full impact and you're really gonna love that. If you see it now, it's gonna be like just walking through the, you know. So um, So you're waiting for the full impact of the premiere then? Yeah, he was telling me this because he's, you know, done sound on 600 million films and he says, you have to just wait. Yeah. So yeah, I'm waiting and building suspense. Yeah. You... Hey, I have a question about going back to the book okay. and then the the hybrid of like the the words and pictures. Did you like when when did you feel like you wanted to move to the the comics or were they the, did the comics exist? Because some of them I feel like maybe existed earlier than when you were writing the novel, or is that not the case? Well, some of them did if they were actually drawn at the time but oh because some of them were from drawn, like in the mid-70s right yeah okay. some of them were and um no but the, I started drawing this I started making this book and doing illustrations but I was frustrated because of what I explained before illustratic you know an illustration alone is generally redundant of what's in the text and um, oh, so you were thinking actually of a separate project in a way well, where no, it was going to be a novel, but with some illustrations. Yeah, well, but I didn't c- know how to do it. Okay, I just was, you know, I knew there had to be a way, but I was <laughs> was struggling to find the answer. Um, yeah. So 
the comics came because it, I like it better. I like it better to have this motion. And I think that my goal was to have kind of a seamless effect where you're reading words and it goes into the comic and you don't really notice that you're someplace else because it's continuing the story. And but, but it does feel different because you're feels that different. motion. What is that? How... How do you know how to describe that? Because I know what you mean. Yeah, I get a sense of it, but um, it's like okay, you're walking through the airport, right? Dragging your bags, oh. and then suddenly on you're on the walking thing, <laughs> right. the whatever they're called, and it goes a little faster. I mean, it's kind of like that, and it, huh. but also the comics. I mean, you know, like any teenager's diary, it's like kind of it's tunnel vision, you know. It's black and white. It's all about whoever is writing it and nothing else, really. Um, so the comics had were written from a different point of view because you see the girl. You mm. see all the people that are written about. So it's kind of omniscient. And you get, I think, a better idea of what the situation was really like. I mean, right. Yeah. Because it is like moving from frame to frame... And the, the panels you see, there is that, literally that motion. And so something in your head is registering that somehow. Yeah. And not, yeah. I know what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, it's, what is that called? I don't know if it's called anything. But um, it's very different from film to me. And um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I guess you'd have to look at the book. Yeah. I don't know. I just wrote it. I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't, it must. It actually is hard to talk about. Your um, own work? Yeah. It is, because you're so deeply into it while you're working on it, and that could go on for years. And then as soon as you finish it, you get incredibly depressed because you feel like you have no reason to live. And what's... Is there anything next? Could there be? Right. You You don't know what is next, and... It, it's it's really weird. It's it's really like um, relinquishing yourself entirely to something, to a project. And when it's over, it's like you've lost your child. And, you know, right. And it takes a while to get back on your feet to write another, to write another book because this other thing is so much a part of you. So, But then 10 years later, you're kind of like, what? I didn't never saw this book before. You know, <laughs> what page is that on? What? Tell right. me why not. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. But it, but it seems like I wonder does it feel different when you're it's the is it different with a novel? Like when you're you're telling the story that way, words and pictures too, but with more like the, a lot of words. Mm -hmm. Different to other things that you're making because my sense of it is like you're you're making all the time like when I looked at your website then there's like a link to like older websites where I even saw you did like google googly eyes or and I was like that's great or, or like the self-portraits um that accompanied some interview that you did for a now defunct magazine with like images and text so it seems like so but is it like is the novel like is the novel different than from other like if you're painting or if you're sculpting or if you're yeah, it's very different. I mean, it's different in the sense that um, it, it's one piece. I mean, what is a book? It's like you open it and there's a whole world in there, right? It's an encapsulated world. So, but when I'm making stuff, it's always somehow feeding me for the next thing. So it's keeping my hands busy or my mind busy. And I don't know what's going to end up in the next thing. You know, it's just like when I'm, I didn't realize when I started this Juarez thing that I was going to build dioramas. I just didn't know. I had to come to that and learn how to use power tools and learn how to sew and all this stuff. But you just do it. Um, and you make a lot of mistakes and you make a lot of trials and errors. And But eventually you you realize that you have something that feels like what it should be. And, you know, in this earlier interview from a while ago, you said something to this interviewer about how creating mini, creating a character in this distancing mechanism is like putting a doll in a diorama. And I was like, what? and that's like your current work. And this must have been years ago. So it was a way you were thinking then. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I actually, well, I, I shouldn't say this on the radio because it doesn't make sense. I have a story that I did a long time ago about this little girl who walks through the woods, wait, and finds all these dolls. And 
wait, and then there's another. Oh, this little girl. Yes, yeah. She's she finds all these little sick dolls. Yes, and she's trying to save their lives. But it's kind of like yes. And I did this before going to Boris, so that was like, I, I don't know. Maybe it was already in my head, like save dollies and make them live. That's but, right. and yeah. live again and live and again. again. And also, just can I say one more thing? Okay, to build these dioramas, I'm not in Mexico. I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Michigan, and um, when I build these things, it makes me feel like I'm there because. It's kind of painful to be so far from what you're writing about, at least sometimes. And I am doing a lot of writing, actually, so it's not just the visual things. But I wouldn't put the writing on my website because then it's not done, you know. But a picture here and there, you can. But um, so, like I said, it is kind of magical. It's a way... I mean, I don't believe in magic, but... But I, if you did. If you did, but I believe in projection. I can project things on these dolls and they feel like real people. Thank you, Phoebe Gleckner. Thank you. For talking with me today on Living Writers. Come back anytime. Let's talk again, okay? Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for everyone for listening. Thanks to the Liz for engineering. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Ocean Man.